0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of National Security Magazine from the DSR Network. I'm David Rothkopf, your host. And we are very fortunate to be joined uh, for this week's episode by Ambassador Timothy Romer. Uh, former U.S. Ambassador to India, former congressman from Indiana, former member of the 9-11 Commission, one of the smartest, uh, most thoughtful guys I know in Washington, which admittedly is not setting the bar terribly high, but I'm very glad to have you here.
0: Uh, well, thank you for that backhanded compliment, David.
1: No, no, it's a four-handed compliment. I, I think you're terrific, as you know. And I thought, you know, one of the things we like to do is uh, cover the— the news that sometimes slips between the cracks. I just was reading actually today that the mainstream news, the big outlets, uh, devote precisely 7.5% of their coverage to the rest of the world. Um, and so we're trying to fill the gap a little bit. One of the areas where I think that's especially important is in one of our most important st- strategic great power relationships, Uh, And that's one you know well, that's with India. And the reason I think it's especially important right now is uh, uh, quite apart from the uh, tension between India and Pakistan two nuclear powers that we've had to endure the past couple of weeks. uh, We've also uh, seen in recent days um, an abrupt turn in the U.S.-India trade relationship. Uh, where it looks like we are going to withdraw a certain kind of status from them, which will be quite damaging. Now, Indian observers say India is partially responsible for this. Uh, you know, U.S. observers will say the U.S. is partially responsible. But as a former ambassador, I'm wondering, what do you think of the state of the U.S.-India relationship right now?
0: Well, I think it's a great question to begin with, David, because... Um First of all, when we look at the world trends taking place right now, if we started on nationalism and populism, uh, which is rising everywhere, uh, certainly we see it in India with uh, Mr. Modi and him him coming up for re-election in probably the next month or month and a half. Once the election dates are nailed down and certain, you have the technology, um, uh, artificial intelligence, smartphone, uh, 5G questions going around internationally. India is at the heart of this, especially with the growth in the smartphone network there. We have the trade issue that you just, um, as always, cogently mentioned. Uh, You are on top of uh, everything in foreign policy, David. My respect goes uh, uh, right back to you in a a very uh, genuine and deep fashion. Um, Trade is becoming more and more of an intricate uh, national security issue, and we can talk more about that. We have the asymmetrical warfare or hybrid warfare that we're seeing, uh, that Russia and China are particularly adapted. Uh, they are uh, playing this game with the United States, but also uh, this has an, uh, you know, a play on, on India. And then finally, one of the biggest trends in the world is this climate volatility and extreme weather and we're seeing pollution as one of the uh, rising costs of health care in India, and 15 of the most polluted 20 cities in the world are now listed in India. So that just brings us to why India is important and why the Obama administration in particular thought this this uh, shift, uh, this emphasis on Asia, with India as the linchpin as a strategic uh, great player, a, a risen global power, was so important. Uh, the the trade issue that you just mentioned, uh, first of all, some context of history. We've been having you know trade disputes with India uh very consistently and it's one of the thornier and more frustrating issues even as our relationship deepens and improves in so many other areas we're seeing it improve uh you know in in counter terrorism cooperation and counter uh you know in in anti piracy cooperation in defense sales and and trade and in the Indian Ocean domain all kinds of education and people to people contacts But that economic area has really been a difficult one to get at because both our country and the United States and India um, have democracies, and we tend to protect some of the industries and make it difficult. India makes it particularly difficult to get into some of their markets, particularly uh, particularly agriculture. So this has come to a head under President Trump, and uh, he has just announced the withdrawal of certain... uh, uh, GSP benefits, which could impact uh, several billion dollars uh, of trade between the two countries. Most experts estimate it to be much less that, than that. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is probably symbolic of President Trump's um, transactional relationship with, with every country in the world, let alone India, where he tends to see it through. Economic trade terms, deficit versus uh, surplus, and he doesn't see the important strategic complexities that you previously uh, mentioned—the relationship uh, and impact of a growing China-Russia axis, the importance of the United States uh, working with uh, India to balance China's growth. Uh, India is a democracy and somebody that we're counting on to spread democracy in that part of the world more and more. So. You know, the Trump administration, I think, is rather tone deaf in making this an issue a month before the Indian election when they'll see even less progress on it and less hope to get something done.
1: Um, I know that uh, this relationship has been a priority uh, for successive presidents and started in the Clinton administration, and there was a major effort to go there. Hillary Clinton went there, and Strobe Talbot prioritized it. Uh, George W. Bush, for whatever we may say about some of his policies, uh, really made a big push on elevating the status of emerging markets, uh, uh, including India, during his, his tenure. And, of course, during the Obama administration, folks like you um, recognize that in the world to come, uh, as you just indicated, India is – vitally important to us it will soon be the most populous country in the world it's a rapidly growing economy but it's also the critical counterbalance to China um, uh, that that exists in the world um, and uh, the relationship has always been on kind of uneven footing dating back into the Cold War and so a lot of attention was needed. but I guess the question is and it underlies everything that you just said is it getting that, Attention. There's some misunderstandings you've referred to, but um, I I wouldn't be a bit surprised to find out that the NSC doesn't talk about this. In fact, I've heard that uh, from several sources um, that the key personnel who might be involved in discussions of this just simply aren't engaged, Uh, and that 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 kind of neglect um, uh, foreshadows perhaps even worse troubles ahead. At least. To me, do you share this concern?
0: I do share the concern that um, in a busy, chaotic, tumultuous world that we see today, when President Trump spends uh, a lot of time uh, on North Korea, on uh, Iran, on uh, troubleshooting in the world, on uh, singularly on the trade issue, that he is not putting enough active time proactive strategy, uh, personnel uh, in touch with the Indian side to not just only advance what successive administrations have prioritized in a bipartisan way on our side, but what the Indians have also prioritized on their side. They have a BJP government now. They had a Congress government before. They've had coalition you know, partnerships. Uh, the Indians uh, increasingly see a relationship with the United States uh, on a global basis as uh, in their interest on most issues. And so, as you know, working and writing books on the National Security Council in the United States, if you are – if you have 24 hours in the day – and you're spending you know, 18 of them on troubleshooting or on one or two particular issues, and you're not advancing strategy and goals uh, on new initiatives or to further implement what you've already announced or what previous administrations have announced on India, then you're falling behind. Furthermore, what we see in the world, David, and you know this very well, is that other countries are valuing the the India relationship and pushing forward. So when the United States is not doing it, we're not only losing out for our own interests geopolitically, but other countries are trying to either – get a better relationship with India or drive a wedge into our relationship with them. And as the intelligence community announced when they testified on the Hill a couple weeks ago, they said that uh, they have now recognized this uh, partnership or axis between Russia and China becoming closer than any time in the last several decades. And uh, when Mr. Trump announces that uh, he is going to penalize India on some trade issues just before their elections, just when Modi you know, is, is going to be least receptive to that message and, and able to do something on it to help our manufacturing base and create jobs in America, which we want to do, uh, that creates opportunities and openings for, for China and Russia.
1: Uh, you've, you've talked a little bit about Modi, and uh, I think it's uh, you know, useful to our listeners who are all sort of inclined towards following international affairs, but may not be following the politics of India that closely, uh, to consider what may happen in that election and how Modi has turned out. You, you've watched it very closely. Um, I think some of the promise associated with Modi has become undercut by the degree of nationalism that he's embraced um do you think that that nationalism is likely to become more heightened as we get closer to an election and what do you think will happen after
0: well modi is prime minister modi is a very interesting you know political person he uh, used holograms in 2014 to campaign all over india he's technologically very sophisticated uh he's he's uh, very good on twitter uh he uh has appealed to this rising populism around the world particularly uh, in his case in india by saying you know we want to make I- india strong he wants to make india clean he wants to go back to the days of uh you know mahatma gandhi and and uh try to make sure that uh you know the 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 health and the education of indians uh, the pride in india is one of the you know highest priorities for him that sounds very familiar to many of us we've seen this in you know in, in uh uh the kind of language that is used in brazil uh and in uh, uh poland and in uh uh, even Mr. Xi with the Communist Party, not a democracy, uses the same kind of language. Um, you know, the strong men around the world are using some of this similar language. Uh, and, and Modi comes from very humble roots. Uh, his background is fascinating. Uh, uh, he's come from nothing to be the Prime Minister of India. And so that's kind of a success, um, uh, American success story in India for him politically. You know, your question about. Um, where does this go? He has uh, found himself, due to the state elections being barometers before the national election that we see taking place in the next several weeks, that the state elections have shown him to be weaker than previously thought. The Congress party has performed better either on its own or forming coalitions against Modi's BJP party. And now people are guessing that this is going to be a much closer election for Modi than they would have estimated a year or two ago, and that uh, if he wins, that will be with less seats, and that could certainly um, impact his ability to govern for the next five years if he wins in terms of – uh, his message, his politics, his reform oriented agenda, uh, whether he does the big bang, big issue reforms, or whether he has to play, you know, the small baseball and hit the singles and doubles more to try to get reforms. And then how does his foreign policy? Um, uh, become implemented if he's weakened in the election? Is he still going to emphasize the United States as one of his strongest partners? Does he try to play off uh, China on his border a little bit more? Uh, how does he react after the election to the uh, recent troubles and percolation and escalation of a possible war with Pakistan and, and Kashmir that we've seen rumblings of uh, the last couple of weeks? Uh, all this is going to play out, I think, uh, during the election and then afterwards if he wins. Um,
1: well, it's certainly going to be something to watch. Let me shift gears a little bit where we've got about uh, another 10 or 15 minutes to go. and uh, Because your breadth of knowledge is quite extensive. And I'd like to go back a little bit further, though, um, uh, because you were on the nine eleven commission and we are kind of – Seems to me coming to the end of almost two decades of U.S. foreign policy where um, we saw terrorist threats as the number one threat facing the country. And we went from being concerned with our lack of preparedness um, to shifting a lot of our military resources, a lot of political resources towards addressing terrorism. But now you've got us looking to get out of Afghanistan, looking to get out of Syria, looking to get out of the Middle East more broadly. Um, And, you know, there there are a couple of ways to look at it, and maybe both are true. One is, well, it's about time we overinvested in these things, and it's time to sort of put other priorities um, in their proper place. Um, and, and, And another way to look at it is we're setting ourselves up for the same kind of problem we had in the past. Uh, And I was wondering what your view is on that dichotomy.
0: I would say, you know, my first reaction to it is that uh, on the 9-11 Commission, we tried to do three things um, after the 9-11 attacks. One was... How do we recognize this emerging threat against the United States uh, that had been on the radar screen for at least a decade before the attack of uh, September 1st, 2001? There were signs that uh, terrorism was uh, percolating around the world, the USS Cole, uh, Osama bin Laden. uh, There were were lots of signs that... uh, uh, something was going to happen possibly against the United States on the homeland but certainly there were indications around the world that terrorism was becoming one of the bigger threats and it was not only that this was not a nation state this was not a, a, a you know a division of tanks attacking us this was a much shorter fuse a cell of people you know maybe 19 in this case but it could be four Uh, They could be radicalized on the Internet and not in a camp in Pakistan or Afghanistan. How does the United States uh, counter this uh, short-fuse threat that is coming from maybe four people to 20 people rather than Russia uh, or a nation state? And how does the United States get its head around that and react to that kind of threat, whether it be somebody trying to steal uh, nuclear weapons or biological weapons or attack our country? The second part of this, David, which we really wrestled with, and you and I have talked uh, at length of this over lunch before, is the 9-11 Commission looked at how do we reorganize our government so that the government can act more quickly and in a more coordinated fashion? and through cyber uh, to uh, better uh, put together platforms and organize itself, whether it's the National Security Council, whether it's sharing information between the FBI and the CIA, whether it's the overseas threat versus a domestic threat. How do we share information uh, more dynamically and more quickly in a world when somebody can become radicalized overnight and attack us? Or Uh, go after our water source or food source from overseas, uh, you know, into the United States, or, you know, uh, 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 another kinds of national security threats steal our intellectual property rights, uh, whether that's a defense company in San Diego or MIT in Boston. Uh, which the Chinese are constantly doing. How do we organize government in new ways to counter these threats, to anticipate this, and to be more proactive uh, with our national security strategy and get our government to to, uh, anticipate this and put forward policy uh, more, more, uh, you know, more quickly. And then the third part of this was, how do we try to anticipate what other threats are going to be coming at us after, you know, terrorism in this form? Uh, you know, I, I started your show today trying to talk about some of those global trends of nationalism, technology, and artificial intelligence and 5G, uh, trade, which has become more and more important, especially to us in the Midwest, the Great Heartland. Uh, This should be part of our national security strategy when other countries are stealing intellectual property rights, uh, are hacking our systems, are attacking our grids, um, electrical grids and banking systems. That's stealing jobs from the United States. That's threatening our national security secrets and our defense secrets. Uh, How do we incorporate that into our national security policy of uh, 2020 and the next presidency? I think that's critically important, and then you know as your as your question uh, rightly pointed out uh you know the priorities in national security syria afghanistan the middle east uh, those have all been high priorities in the past uh we have to be cautious we have to be careful we have to you know w- with withdraw from some of those places smartly uh, uh, you know in in a way that doesn't leave a vacuum for terrorists to come into but uh, there are also other priorities that we need to move to uh, moving forward
1: well one of the things you probably didn't anticipate when you were working in the nine eleven commission was the president of the united states becoming one of the principal national security threats we face Uh, and yet here we are at a moment where the president of the united states um, has uh, uh, we've seen his campaign staff implicated in 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 uh, cooperation with a foreign enemy with russia Uh, we've seen uh, 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 the likelihood of financial compromises that compromise his standing Uh, We've seen some bad decisions that have been made for a variety of reasons, but that put us at risk uh, and begin to reverse, in fact, 75 years of U.S. foreign policy in terms of uh, our support for the multilateral system and our support for alliances uh, that have been vital to us around the world. uh, And a a kind of a retreat to nationalism uh, has become a centerpiece of this, um, which has its own dark side with regard to ethno-nationalism. And that brings us to the 2020 election, where there is not just a uh, uh, an imperative of, that Democrats might always feel to win an election, but there is a underlying national security reason why many people feel Trump needs to be uh, defeated. Having said that, there are 13 or a dozen or 13 Democratic candidates now. There'll be 20 Democratic candidates. Uh, I heard that Cory Booker recently joked that 2020 stands for the fact that there will be 2,020 Democratic candidates. Uh, <laughs> the 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 reality is that even though this is existential, the Democratic Party is setting itself up potentially to become fragmented, left versus right, old versus new, center of the country versus the coast, young versus old. However, however it works. That becomes then a a kind of a threat in and of itself. Do you think the Democratic Party can uh, avoid fragmentation and keep its act together?
0: That is one of the most important questions you could ask. Uh, Let me be an optimist uh, and somebody uh, with hope and promise in in our party's future, but start with a cautionary note or two. The first cautionary note is, uh, as you and I speak, uh, the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives, uh, I think struggling with its new uh, majority status, uh, has gotten off their message of uh, democracy reform, dark money, transparency, uh, cleaning up the the corruption swamp in Washington, D.C. to uh, one of Division on this question about uh, the new freshman congresswoman uh, Ilan Omar and whether she was she should have a resolution on the floor condemning some remarks she made that are uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, how to deal with that and the message of cleaning up our democracy, of uh, putting the people back in charge, of trying to make sure billionaires and uh, and special interests and lobbyists aren't running the show like they are, but that the people of the people, by the people, for the people are back in charge of our great experiment of representative democracy. So that canary in the coal mine uh, is a troubling one. Um, we have to be united. We need to move forward, not as you know a divided caucus or a divided party uh, you know, of tribes, but of of intent to win back the presidency, of doing great things for the middle class, uh, rebuilding that uh, fragmented middle class, whether they be black or white or Polish or, or Irish or Latina. Uh, you know, Robert Kennedy's uh, message back in 1968 was not one to segmented peoples in America. It was to everybody that we needed to work together and unify to uh, move the United States forward, uh, and progress for one group meant progress for everybody. And so I worry, uh, like your question alludes to, that uh, our tendency sometimes to fragment, to divide, to uh, go along certain gender or religious or uh, uh, tribal groups, uh, are, are, that, that can really cause us problems. I, I think what the unifying principle should be should be threefold. Uh, what candidate um, can beat uh, Donald Trump in 2020? Who can unify America again and govern the country? And third, how do we reestablish the kind of foreign policy and national security that continues to make America, you know, the strongest country in the world moving forward and we've been the strongest country in the world for, as you know, decades. So I think those are the key questions. I think we can get there. Uh, I think we will get there, but I think there are going to be some bumps along the way, and uh, we have to come up with a strong candidate in 2020 that uh, can defeat Donald Trump, and that should be the bottom line.
1: I would argue um, that the Democratic Party actually has a plethora of strong candidates. Uh, There is not just one way to beat Donald Trump, and that's not just by the way, uh, because he is uh, a wounded candidate, a candidate who's likely to be running with even more baggage than he has now, one who won uh, the electoral vote by a very, very narrow margin in states that now lean against him, Um, uh, and one who has alienated key parts of his own base, even, even though it always seems, you know, that 80% Eighty percent of it's there. Losing twenty percent of it when the race is so close is is critical. But but also the the Democrats face a diff, a lot of choices. They could say let's let's go back to the good old days of Obama when things were competent and scandal free. They could say let's go to the future and start laying the groundwork for. Uh, the next uh, several decades of American growth and a resurgence of a of a new kind of economy, new job job creation, shifting demographics and 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 focusing on the future. Uh, they can say uh, uh, they can emphasize different aspects of this. They can talk about uh, fighting the corruption within our system or investing in our people and our infrastructure, and new jobs. and of course, they'll do all of these things, but, I guess my point is, it doesn't seem to me, you know, 20 months before the election, like, uh, or however many it is, 18, 19 months before the election, um, that, that there, is, there is only one path and that uh, it's a trap to think that there is. But, but perhaps you have a different view.
0: Well, I would, I would just put out an asterisk or a warning on this. I do think that we uh, see a Donald Trump in a very, very, uh, you know, difficult world today. Our politics are more divided in America than ever. Social media echoes some of these uh, divisions. Uh, other countries try to uh, uh, rip us apart uh, with their trolling and uh, with their cyber attacks on the United States. That. Uh, That is a very difficult problem, and that's not going to get better between now and 2020 election. And then you look at Trump's approval rating in the country, and he's at about 42 to 45 percent, depending upon what poll um, you you believe or you look at. But he's somewhere in that range, and the Republican Party approves of him somewhere in the range of 82 to 85 percent. So anybody with a base of forty two to forty five percent in this divided United States and they don't seem to ever desert him for any reason. Uh whether he gets in trouble with Michael Cohen and his hearings last week and Cohen calls him all these names is his attorney who would know him well, whether it's his intelligence chiefs uh, disagreeing with him on everything from North Korea to uh to Syria to uh uh, you know, cyber issues, uh, they all disagree with him in his priorities in foreign policy. Uh, he 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 doesn't seem to have a moral compass on so many issues, uh, not a role model for our kids uh, in, in any fashion. But he maintains this 42 to 45 percent. And so if you maintain that and you go into a divided election in 2020 and there's not a strong Democrat – that can stand up to Trump, that is good in the Midwest, in the heartland, and can rebuild the blue wall there in uh, Iowa, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, uh, that has a fresh message in some ways, a middle class tax cut, a strong national security, uh, good health care policies for all Americans. We, if we nominate through 200 candidates running a weaker candidate that doesn't have those appeals and that message, we risk Donald Trump actually winning again. And uh, I've, uh, I've, I'm not sure I can even say that. Uh, uh, once more for you, David.
1: Uh, yeah, no, that's a that's a, sort of a troubling thought. We, we're a little bit over time here, but I want to ask one more question, following up on that. Um, uh, we're we recording this uh, uh, on uh, uh, Thursday afternoon, and uh, uh, I just saw crossing the wires that. Uh, sherrod brown has announced he's not running for president uh, so that was one of the sort of leading midwest candidates that the 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 uh democratic party was looking towards potentially um now you know i i also sort of look at that and i say well sherrod brown has announced it mike bloomberg has announced this uh i'm getting the impression that this is the advance work of joe biden getting certain people out of the way to say, I am the man who can do that. Do you think there's only one person in the Democratic Party who can win the Midwest where you are from? Or, you know, can uh, Amy Klobuchar, can somebody from the coast? Is it is it, you know, is is, it, is there a magic formula here? Uh, I'm just interested
0: in your view. I think there are a lot of great candidates that we have, uh, David, with a, a lot of different uh, strengths, uh, the 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 more candidates, right now, uh, I think the healthier it is for our party. If we don't divide and splinter, if we don't, um, you know, attack each other. Uh, the, the, the target should be Donald Trump, uh, the, the effort should be to defeat him, you know, whether it's a Harris or a Biden, or whether it's a Sanders or a Klobuchar, whether it's a Buttigieg uh, in the Midwest from some, my hometown of South Bend, Indiana, who appeals to kind of a more millennial uh, message and a new inclusion of local community and local government, we have a very, very strong field. And uh, Amy Klobuchar, a senator from Minnesota, is um, uh, a Midwesterner, uh, somebody that either at the top of the ticket or as a vice presidential candidate could – Help campaign in those states, and look—it wasn't too long ago that uh, the Obama-Biden ticket uh, won in Indiana in 2008. That was the first time we'd won Indiana since 1964, when Lyndon Baines Johnson won the state of Indiana, and we really had a big blue wall in the Midwest stretching across there that um, sent Democrats uh, to Washington D.C. and the White House. So. You know, the Obama Biden ticket did it. That's not to say that same coalition would be repeated. I think if Biden runs, which I think he will, he needs to come across as a new Biden 2.0 with some fresh new ideas, with a more succinct um, campaign talk and speech, with um, an appeal and and time in the Midwest. And Obama spent that time in the Midwest. Uh, he listened to people. He campaigned across the Midwest uh, dozens and dozens of times and didn't neglect states like Wisconsin. So uh, I, I am very optimistic. I, I'm hopeful. I'm positive about the Democratic Party coming up with a strong candidate through the electoral process. Uh, and I think we've got plenty of good candidates, and now you know a healthy debate, a good great ticket of strength and and represent uh, representing the Midwest. I hope uh, somebody on that ticket, uh, I think, uh, will put us in good stead to, to win in 2020 and to uh, you know take care of our middle class once again.
1: Yeah, I, I do have to say it's one of those tricks of. Uh, kind of uh, political alchemy that somehow a guy who represents Delaware, which is on the East Coast, uh, like Joe Biden, uh, manages to say, well, I'm actually from Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is almost on the East Coast, and therefore I'm connected to the Midwest. But I get it. I, I understand. <laughs>
0: well, you, know, and you and I would—we've would, would we've talked about this, and some of it, the Democrats tend to put a lot of emphasis on policy and geographics and, and tribes, and Joe Biden—and we have other candidates that can do it—you um, know, Amy Klobuchar, I think, uh, Senator Harris, uh, uh, Sanders is a strong candidate, Beto O'Rourke is a strong candidate. It's style, too. It is, how do you listen to people and show them respect? How do we have a middle-class platform like the Square Deal that rebuilds the strength and the heartland of our middle class that has fallen into poverty after the Great Recession of 2008, 2009? America is only as strong as our middle class and as vibrant as the American dream. And we need to make sure that people like Joe Biden and uh, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and Senator Harris and Sanders are out there connecting, listening, spending time with these people, and uh, you know, listening to some of their frustration on jobs, on health care, on opioid crisis, on uh, you know, fa- family issues. Uh, this is really important for the Democrats to to connect to people, and I think you pointed out that. Uh, uh, we have candidates that stylistically can do that.
1: We have a, we have a lot of them. Uh, and frankly, I think one of the Democrats I know who best does all those things is you. And I don't know why yeah. you're on a podcast <laughs> instead of being out there <laughs> running for something.
0: Because um, I'm but, with important people like you, David. Yeah, yeah, I'm spending yeah. time with your, your hundreds of thousands of listeners to yeah. hopefully get them involved in this effort.
1: Yeah, well, it's 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 appreciated, but uh, I think uh, your public service uh, career is also appreciated. Hopefully, you'll be back in the midst of that one way or another. Uh, but hopefully, you'll be back here, too. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It'd be great if you could join us again sometime.
0: Always look forward to spending time with you. Uh, you are a treasure and an asset for us in this country, and uh, look forward to being on another broadcast.
1: That, that'd be great. Talk to you soon, Tim. Thank you thank very you, much, David. and bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thanks to everybody out there listening to uh, National Security Magazine, to Deep State Radio, to the DSR Network. Go to www.deepstateradionetwork.com for other content, including Deep State Radio broadcasts, uh, uh, Washington for Beautiful People, uh, our, our newsletters, our daily and our weekly, some new content we've got coming up, and of course the chance to sign up and to be a member Uh, which we wish you would do because it supports this work, including conversations like the great one we just had with Ambassador Tim Romer. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio, If you don't, we know where to find you.